major props for reading that genealogy so well. Thank you for doing that. Wouldn't assign that to just anybody, but when I found out Dave Owens was reading, I knew we were in good hands this morning. Well, for many of us, 2020 has no doubt felt like one long groan. Between a pandemic, a struggling economy, the isolation of quarantine, online school, civil unrest, racial injustice, wildfires, hurricanes, a noisy election season, divisive public discourse. This year, perhaps maybe more so than any in recent memory, has reminded us all again and again of our mortality, our lack of control, and our collective brokenness. As 2020 comes to a close, maybe you're like me, and in longing, perhaps more like never before, for some hope, love, joy, and peace. In other words, I think 2020 has been one of God's main means of priming us for the ache of Christmas. Here at the beginning of Advent 2020, it's good to know that the real Christmas, the first Christmas, doesn't require all to be calm and bright. Emphatically, all was not calm and all was not bright that first Christmas. The light of Christ's first coming dawned in days of deep darkness. Zechariah prophesied of his coming the following in Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. He says that Christ came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's where God's people found themselves on the first Christmas, sitting in the darkness and in the shadow of death. Matthew 4.16, echoing Isaiah 42, captures that darkness and the inbreaking of light with the following words. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. We see again that the first Christmas was marked by people dwelling in darkness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to a world that was already filled up with comfort and joy. He came to bring peace to a world that was at war. He came to bring true comfort to a world that was distressed. He came to announce good news of great joy to those who were drowning in a sea of sorrow. He came as a light to shine in the darkness. And into a world of such thick, suffocating darkness, these words rang out in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. (laughs) See, brothers and sisters, that's the spirit of Christmas. And 2020, I think, has made us eager for that spirit because Christmas doesn't pretend the darkness is gone. Our lives may yet grow darker in 2021. We don't know. Only the Lord does. But Christmas looks darkness square in the eye and says, you will not be the triumphant one here. Light has come and will leave you dead. It's only a matter of time. So my prayer is that over this next month, that Jesus would take us by the hand and take us by the heart and show us these things all over again. 
This morning we begin a four-part Advent Christmas series that I'm calling Unexpected, The Confounding Comfort of Christmas. And we're going to look at four different passages in the in, in two in Matthew and two in Luke. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at different passages than we looked at in previous years, so we're not revisiting the same material all over again. But what I want us to do is consider how unexpected Christmas really was. This Christmas was unexpected. This whole year has been unexpected. We didn't expect anything that this year has brought us. And so I think it's fitting that we take up this theme and we're going to look at four unexpected, as, unexpected aspects of Christmas. I'll get that out in a minute. Four unexpected aspects of Christmas. We're going to look at the unexpected family of Jesus this week. Next week, the unexpected power of Jesus. Then the unexpected kingdom of Jesus. And then the unexpected salvation of Jesus. Family, power, kingdom, and salvation. Those four themes will serve as our Christmas series this year. So we begin this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, a genealogy of Jesus Christ, as we consider the theme, the unexpected family of Jesus. We've got four points this morning, and I want us to see what this genealogy offers us by way of Christmas hope. All right, so four things that we learn from this genealogy regarding what Christmas offers us. Number one. Christmas offers certainty for the skeptical. Christmas offers certainty for the skeptical. Now, there's no doubt a wonder and magic to the Christmas season. It brings up all the good nostalgia feelings. And it, but, but for many of us, it can also bring a train of cynicism and discouragement if we're wired that way. And, and, it, can, and it can bring heartache and reminder of lost family and better times, and those sorts of things. And, it, and even as God's people, it can create in us a little bit of hardness. Uh, do we have to sing those Christmas songs again? But Yes, that's right, we do, and we get to, yeah. But Christmas offers certainty for the skeptical. Matthew 1.1 begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's good news. Because Matthew doesn't begin his gospel with once upon a time. That's the stuff of fairy tales and myths and legends. Right, kids? We know when a story begins once upon a time how it's going to go. It's probably not going to be a true story. And for those of us who are more modern, this is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Here's looking at you, Jason Houston. No, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is history. Jesus is not a metaphor. He's real. This all happened. Genealogies substantiate historical accuracy. That's what they're there for. Our faith is rooted in history, not myth or legend. And that's great news. For a year that's been filled with what is truth, can we find it anywhere? Where is it? Is anybody going to tell us the truth about anything anymore? Matthew's going to tell us the truth. Christmas offers certainty for the skeptical. Joanne Shetler spent years in the Philippines with the Balangeo people 
And she was a missionary who spent years translating the Bible into their language so that she could tell them the good news of Jesus. But it was slow going. One day, a man named Amma picked up an English New Testament from her desk, opened it to this genealogy on page one of Matthew, and stared at it. He could read enough English to realize what he was seeing. And amazed, he asked Joanne, You mean this has a genealogy in it? She said, yeah, but just skip over that so we can get to the good part. But his eyes were still riveted to the page. You mean this is true? He asked as he struggled through the long list of names. Now Joanne Shetler, the missionary, got some shelf paper and wrote out the entire genealogy of Jesus from the ceiling down to the floor. Amma took it all over the village explaining, we, is, we have always thought it was the rock and the banana plant that gave birth to people, but we don't have their names written down. Look, here are all the names written down. The Balangeos loved Matthew's written genealogy because it proved the Bible was true. And as a result of that, Amma came to believe in Christ as his Savior and became an enthusiastic evangelist, church leader, and Bible translator. God used this genealogy to spark a missionary movement among an unreached people because it's true. See, because genealogies offer certainty for the skeptical. They give us reason to believe that all these stories about Jesus aren't just made up. See, here's why this is so important, brothers and sisters. If the biblical story begins with once upon a time or a long time ago in a land or a galaxy far, far away, then it's nothing more than inspiring advice or entertainment at best. But if it begins with history, then this is a declaration of real-world events. This means Christmas is, at its essence, not good advice, but good news. See, advice is counsel about what we have to do. But news is a report about what's already been done. Advice urges us to make something happen. But news tells us what's already happened. Advice says it's all up to you to act. But news tells us someone else has already acted. See, all other world religions boil down to salvation being something you have to wrestle with, struggle for, or perform to get. But the gospel is different. See, all the founders of the major world religions say some version of this. I'm here to show you the way, do this. But Jesus says, I am the way, come to me. See, Christmas then offers certainty for the skeptical because it's not primarily about self-improvement. It's not just a place to get some inspiration and guidance for life. Now, of course, the Christmas message has massive implications for how we live, but it's first of all a message that something has happened in history and we need to believe that report. Do you? Do you believe that report? Because Christmas offers certainty for the skeptical. Secondly, Christmas offers welcome for the outcast. Christmas offers welcome for the outcast. Now, of course, as you look at Jesus' family tree here, you probably have a few questions. Maybe one of them is, what are all those sinners doing there? Sure, David was Israel's best king, he's in there, and Abraham was the father of the faith, and he's in there. But you know, David, even though he was Israel's best king, he also committed adultery and arranged for his mistress' husband to be killed. 
Abraham went out in faith, but he also lied about his wife and had a child with his handmaid. Judah sold his brother Joseph to traffickers and slept with his daughter-in-law. And if you notice, this family tree includes something else that's utterly unique to many Eastern genealogies, especially Jewish ones. It includes the name of four women. Now, typical Jewish genealogies didn't include women. Read your Old Testament. See if there are any that show up there. They don't. They only listed men as heads of households. Women in the ancient world had little agency and virtually no voice. So in telling the Christmas story through women like Mary and Elizabeth, and including in this genealogy women like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth, Jesus is telling us that his kingdom is of a different sort altogether. It's for outcasts and it's for sinners. And these women weren't just any women. First, each of them were Gentiles. Here we encounter a theme, even in this genealogy, that's going to run throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and that is the expansion of God's people to include all the nations. Remember, Jesus came to save his people from their sins, but his people are not just the Jewish people, but Gentiles who join with the godly Jewish remnant. Now, it's only explicit that Rahab and Ruth are non-Israelites, but a good case can be made for Tamar and Bathsheba being Gentiles as well. Bathsheba is listed in chapter 1, verse 6, as the wife of Uriah, probably because it makes her Gentile status explicit, since Uriah, if you remember in 2 Samuel 11, was a Hittite. Tamar is also not explicitly identified as a Gentile in the Old Testament, but as a Jewish tradition asserts, she was a Syrian proselyte. So thus, all the evidence that's taken together, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, Ruth a Moabite, and Bathsheba a Hittite's wife. Jesus' family includes all the nations. Second, each of these women, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth, they all carried with them a stigma. Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba have sexual histories. Not only are they Gentiles, but their past is also overcast with shame and abuse. Each was taken advantage of sexually. Tamar is shunned by Judah, who imposes on her in a moment of sin, and Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute, and Bathsheba was taken advantage of sexually by King David. Now let's dive into these women just in a little more detail. First, there's Tamar. Now, her story is in Genesis 38. I preached a sermon on that in our Joseph series several years ago, so if you want to go back and revisit more of that, you can. But suffice to say, she was married to one of the two sons of Judah, Ur, that were the result of his adultery with a Canaanite woman. Ur was killed by God for his sin, and when he died, it was customary for the next oldest brother, in this case Onan, to marry Tamar. But if you remember the story, Onan refused, and God struck him dead. The next brother was much younger, so Tamar waited and waited, and Judah would not give in to her because he appeared to believe that Tamar was somehow cursed by God. So she took matters into her own hand and dressed like a prostitute to seduce Judah. And Judah propositioned her, and as a result of their liaison, she conceived. Now Judah sought to put her to death before learning the child was his, and one of the two sons she bore was Perez, who was an ancestor of David, and eventually Jesus. This is an amazing story of what the grace of God does to include in the family of Jesus both a hypocritical man who covered his sin and exploited his daughter and a helpless and forgotten woman. 
Because in Christ, brothers and sisters, a religious hypocrite and an exploited mistress find grace. Second, there's Rahab. Her story's in Joshua 2. Now, she was a prostitute who hid the Jewish spies who came to scout Jericho so that they wouldn't be caught by the government police. And both James 2.25 and Hebrews 11.31 mention her faith in doing that. Her life is evidence that God is always bringing in outsiders, those seen by religious people to be too damaged by sin. Third, there's Bathsheba. Her story, familiar, is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. She was taken advantage of by King David, as we've already said, and was used to gratify his lusts. And he used his power to get what he wanted. And as a result, her husband Uriah was killed. And after she married David, her child died as a result of David's sin. And this sting of events eventually resulted in a divided kingdom of Israel and an ugly father-son civil war. But Bathsheba's included because she gave birth to a son in the line of Jesus. She's here as a testimony of God's heart for victims of abuse. Finally, there's Ruth. Her story is in Ruth, (laughs) the book of Ruth. Unlike the other three women, she doesn't have a sordid backstory. However, her inclusion is still scandalous, but for entirely different reasons. She wasn't Jewish. She was a Moabite, the sworn enemies of Israel. They weren't even allowed in Israel. But a famine sent a Jewish family to Moab, and Ruth's husband and brother-in-law and father-in-law all perished, but Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth eventually became the wife of Boaz and the great-grandmother of David. See, there's something else about these women. Not only were they all Gentiles, with also sordid and difficult stigmas associated with them, but all of them were fiercely loyal to God. See, three of these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, are characterized by a tenacious fidelity. Tamar is loyal to her family. Rahab is loyal to the Lord, despite not being a part of the nation. And Ruth forsakes all of her idols and follows Naomi's God. Jesus welcomes those who are fiercely loyal to him, no matter their backstories. Now, my wife enjoys being on Ancestry.com and exploring our family's genealogy. But if you signed up for Ancestry DNA and found out that these people were in your family tree, I'm not sure you'd tell anyone. It would be like finding out you were the great-grandson of the Boston Strangler or the fourth fourth cousin of Benedict Arnold. The kind of people Jesus has in his family tree aren't famous. They're infamous. You wouldn't want to put up their Christmas card on your refrigerator. Yet these are the kinds of people that make up the family of God. And this is good news for us. Though we like to pretend, especially at this time of year, that we're the kinds of people who have it all together, you know and I know that we have areas in our lives that we wouldn't want exposed to the light of day. And Jesus is telling us in this genealogy that he has come for people like us. Sam Alberry says, Matthew's genealogy of Christ includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner. Listen to this. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that Jesus came for. 
Let me say that one more time. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that Jesus came for. Because as you know, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Which means he's come for me and he's come for you. People who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even by the law of God can be included in Jesus' family. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you repent and believe in Jesus, his grace will cover your sin and will unite you to him. It's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. It's the humble people who are in and the proud people who are out. Everyone gets in only by the grace of Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're a prostitute or a king, male or female, Jew or Gentile, moral or immoral. At the foot of the cross, we are all on level ground. Equally sinful, equally lost, equally loved, equally accepted. As we look at the family of the Lord, we see the Lord weaving his ways through the faithful, but also through the unfaithful, the failures, the forgotten, in order to accomplish his purpose of bringing salvation to the world through his Son. God is in the business of salvaging sinners. That's what redemption is all about, recreating those he created. Alistair Begg says, we need to learn again that God uses people we wouldn't choose, experiences we wouldn't want, and events we wouldn't plan to achieve his purposes. That's our God. Christmas offers certainty for the skeptical. It offers welcome for the outcast. Thirdly, Christmas offers hope for the, for the unfaithful. Christmas offers hope for the unfaithful. Now, Matthew begins his gospel by telling his readers an audacious claim that an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth who was arrested on false charges and executed by the Romans is the true son of Abraham and the rightful heir to the throne of David and therefore the promised son of God. I mean, if you were to begin this book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, you would think, oh, this is going to be a good story. As Andrew Peterson says in his Behold the Lamb of God uh, concert, and he sings a number of songs, he talks about, he sings a song about the Old Testament where they're, they're longing for this king to come. They're longing for this king to come, and they want that king to have a sword in his fist. And that's what they want this king to have. But this king ends up dying of false charges on a Roman cross. And you're telling me he's the son of Abraham, the son of David? Now, in this point, we're dealing with Christmas offering hope for the unfaithful. So I want to show you how this genealogy shows us that. I want you to hear me carefully, because this is going to take some explaining. This is going to be the most probably nuanced theological point of the sermon. The Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate in Jesus Christ, had no right to be the Messiah of Israel. Now, I'm going to define what I mean with care. I don't want, to, I don't want the force of that statement to be missed. By Son of God, I mean the second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate by the Virgin Mary. By Messiah, I mean the anointed king over God's people that the whole Old Testament is prophesying is coming the one whom God had promised would rescue and rule over his kingdom forever. 
And by inherent right, I mean a native authority, authority that one possesses by virtue of his existence, character, position. In summary, God had no right to become Israel's king. Even though God was the ultimate sovereign of the universe and Israel was his covenant people, he could not merely take on flesh and assume the throne. What was the obstacle? God made a covenant with David specifying that one of David's descendants would sit on Israel's throne forever. Read 2 Samuel 7 or Ezekiel 34 or Jeremiah 23. It, the Messiah had to come from the line of David. When God made a covenant with David, he bound himself to that covenant. That's what I mean God had no inherent right because once he bound himself to David's line, that's where the Messiah has to come from. Only a descendant of David could sit on Israel's throne and ultimately the throne of the universe forever. God, now, God had always been Israel's savior and he'd always been its great king, but once he made this covenant with David, only a man could be Israel's Messiah because only a man could sit on David's throne. Now, here's what Matthew 1 is teaching us. Matthew 1 is demonstrating Jesus Christ's legal claim to the throne of David because he's a descendant of David and Abraham. So any argument that put forth Jesus as the Messiah would have to deal with this claim. That's why Matthew began his gospel by establishing this critical point. This is the point of the genealogy, that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, Matthew traces Jesus' legal right to the throne of Israel through Joseph's line. Do you see that in verse 16? Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. In Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus' lineage traced through Mary's family all the way back to Adam to make the important case that Jesus is fully human, that he's the second Adam come to reverse the curse and rescue humanity. Now, both families come from the family of David. Joseph was from David's son Solomon via royalty, and Mary from David's son Nathan, who was not royalty. Now, Jesus could not claim the right to sit on David's throne as a son of Mary alone. The problem was that no man connected Jesus to David's family tree. The link that Mary provided was sufficient to gain citizenship in Israel for Jesus, but not to give him access to the throne. It's like someone you know, can't be the president of our country unless they're born into the United States. They can't be a naturalized citizen. Sorry, John Hogue. No hope for you. I know this is your aspirations long term. But... This is what this genealogy is teaching us. By virtue of Jesus being born of Mary, he could be an Israelite, but he cannot be the king of Israel. He needed to come through the family of David on his father's side. But what if Jesus has no earthly father? And so Joseph, in adopting Jesus as his son and marrying Mary, gives him the right to Israel's throne. Now, this is incredibly significant, right? This is the beauty of this genealogy. The real point of this story is to establish a link between Jesus and David, which Matthew did by explaining how Joseph extended his genealogy to Jesus through adoption. Jesus was not born a son of David, but he became a son of David because Joseph obeyed God. Joseph named him, Therefore, Joseph adopted him, and by that act, the Son of God became the Son of David, giving him the covenantal right to sit on David's throne and thereby enabling him to save his people from their sins. And this shows God's faithfulness. You see that? 
That's what I want you to notice in all these strange genealogical details, is God's faithfulness. God made a binding promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 concerning one of his sons, and this genealogy shows that God fulfilled it. He made sure it happened. See, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of human promises. Human promises are flawed, they fail, but when God promises something, we can take it to the bank. And this genealogy proves it. If he has pledged himself to you, God isn't letting you go no matter what you do. Israel couldn't outsend the promises of God, and neither can you. Maybe you say, well, perhaps God will keep his promise to me, but I've not kept my promises to him. I've messed up my life. It can't be made right. But look at this genealogy. Verse 2 says that Jacob was the father of Judah. Do you know Judah was the child of Jacob? Because Jacob, do you know how that happened? Because Jacob lied and deceived his father Isaac to get the firstborn's right that should have gone to his brother Esau. And because of that deception, Jacob fractured his family, turned Esau against him, became a fugitive, lost his family, and suffered suffered terrible consequences for his sin. Yet it was only because of all this that he met Leah, who became an ancestor of Jesus. So what Jacob did was wrong. What David did was wrong, and they suffered for it. But God's mercy is more, and his grace is greater than our sin. He used all that sordidness, all that stupidity, all that sin to bring about his faithful promise. So this genealogy shows us that God offers hope for those who are unfaithful. Fourthly and finally, Christmas offers rest for the weary. Christmas offers rest for the weary. One other lesson we learn from this genealogy is that Jesus is the ultimate rest. You say, wait, how is that the case? Hang with me here. We're going to do some numbers. Now, at the end of the genealogy, Matthew says that there were 14 generations. You see that, right? Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, what's the significance of all that? There have been six sevens of generations. And that makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh seven. Right? 14, 14, 14, six, right? Six sevens. He's the seventh seventh. Now what's the, what's the significance of that? I just want you to hang with me biblically and theologically here for a second. Because this is something that genealogies in, the Jewish, in, in Jewish history, they would have picked up on this significant. We don't because we don't really think about genealogies, and most of the time when they're in our Bible reading plan, we just skip them, right? Come on, you can confess it. It's in church. We skip them, or at least we listen maybe on double speed or something like that. But what is this about? In the Bible, the number seven is highly significant, right? Because as Genesis tells us, God rested from his created work on the seventh day. In the Mosaic law, every seven years, The farmer was to let the land lie fallow to give it a chance to replenish its nutrients, and so the seventh year represented rest, just like the seventh day represented rest. And finally, we're told in Leviticus 25 that the last year of the seventh period of seven years, that is the 47th year, was a year of jubilee. In that year, all the slaves were to be freed, 
and all the debts were to be forgiven, and all the land and all the people were to have rest from their weariness and from their burdens. Jesus arrived in Jubilee. This was the seventh period. And so there's a rest being offered. Matthew is telling us that this rest is coming. This long-promised rest is coming. And this is such good news for us after a wearisome 2020. Because this tells us that in Jesus, we can stop having to prove ourselves because you know it doesn't really matter in the end whether you're a failure or a king. All you need is God's grace, and we can have it despite our failures. After you know him, of course you want to live your life to please him, but you don't have to clean up your life first in order to know him as Savior, and that brings us inward peace and rest. But we also, brothers and sisters, we need rest from the troubles and evils of this world, don't we? We feel like we have to control history. We have to make everything go right. But that's not only exhausting, it's impossible. What if 2020 was designed by God to increase our weariness so that we might return and rest in him? Think about this for a second. Eugene Peterson once said, a person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he or she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. You've got to get fed up with the ways of the world. And maybe this year has been one of God's means of getting us just fed up with the ways of the world, tired of its struggles, tired of its problems, tired of its sin, tired of my sin. Think with me for a moment. What if a global pandemic has shown us our mortality and fragility so that the pandemic would awaken our worship of a resurrected king? <laughs> Even as we work to eradicate this virus, maybe God's sending us a message that says, one day death will be swallowed up in victory when God himself wipes away our tears and pain will be no more. No pandemics in the new earth. In this fallen world, plenty of them. What if this season of divisive presidential politics, which has left some churches divided, families divided, not to mention a country divided. What if that was designed to make us feel less at home in this world? What if that was designed so that this feeling of exile would remind us that our real citizenship is in heaven and our king is Jesus and our platform is the Great Commission? What if this year brought a new awareness of injustice and brokenness and wrongs so that we could allow this awareness to lead us to a truer outworking of biblical justice? What if the isolation of quarantine and the fact that we've experienced these interruption in in-person worship services would drive us to deeper gratitude for the church and the family of God and help us to realign our priorities to make us more church-centered Christians? See, brothers and sisters, this year has shaken our idols and uprooted our comforts and reminded us of our mortality and brought us a new awareness of brokenness that maybe we haven't experienced in our lifetimes. But as difficult as this year has been, this is why we celebrate Advent. 
because Advent gives us the opportunity to voice both our unwavering hope in Jesus, but also a longing cry of how long, O Lord. And when that long-awaited day comes, it will be all the more glorious for the ache that we experience now. It's going to be like a dawn after a long darkness or a distant garden blooming in an arid desert. That is the purpose of Advent. And that's why I'm thankful because in Matthew's gospel, we are promised not only certainty for our skepticism, but welcome, we're offered hope, and we're offered rest. May the Lord help us to experience that. And may Jesus take us by the hand and our hearts and lead us into these ways all over again. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these reminders this morning of restlessness and uneasiness and fear that gripped the first Christmas. We are thankful that in the midst of that, you came as a God of certainty. You came as a God of hope. You came as a God of rest. And you came as a God of welcome. Lord Jesus, these are all the things that we need this season and all seasons of this life. And help us not only to receive that from you, but help us to give that to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to be those welcoming places. Help us to be those refuge for each other where we can find rest. Help us to be the ones who offer hope to one another in the midst of a of an, of an unhopeful world and a cynical and perverse generation. Lord, help us to be people of the day. Help us to be people who are longing for the flowers to bloom in the desert. Help us to be people who are longing to see the new sunrise come with healing in its wings. And we thank you that we get to celebrate that even now as we rise to worship you with thanksgiving in our hearts. For Jesus, who has come and is coming again, we ask all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. Amen.